I'm Amy Halperlap. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Dr. Brian Jones. Dr. Jones directs the New York Public Library's new Center for Educators and Schools. He's the former Associate Director of Education at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, where he was also a scholar in residence. The recipient of many awards, Dr. Jones taught elementary grades for nine years in New York City's public schools and also taught several courses at Hunter College's School of Education. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me. Brian, you come down hard on corporate school reformers who cast themselves as champions of Black youth while at the same time undermining teachers' unions. Would you explain that? Sure. I had the experience of beginning my career as a classroom teacher in the early 2000s in Harlem, which felt like one of the epicenters of a wave of privatization and attempts to undermine what felt like attempts to undermine a public education system. And so here I was going to work every day, trying to do my best as a teacher with my colleagues, you know, under-resourced, always trying to uh, campaign for smaller class sizes and more resources and less standardized testing and all the things that would make the educational experience more rich and rewarding, more relaxed and groovy. And it felt like along came this agenda with a sledgehammer where suddenly people with a lot of just deep pockets suddenly seemed to have a target on my back. And so that's why I, I didn't really understand what was going on. We, my colleagues and I were struggling to kind of get our heads around what it was. We were, I think it, it can sometimes in American politics be easy to see the Republicans as the party of like, you know, big business or whatever. And the Democratic Party is the party of the unions and the ordinary folk. But in this case, it seemed that the Democratic Party, too, was deeply implicated and more than that, even leading the charge. And so that was a head scratcher for a lot of people. So I started reading and doing a little bit of writing, trying to get my head around what was going on. And it led me to the conclusion that, that this is part of a long pattern of education, that many different classes have tried to put their stamp on this institution because it's so important and so central in our contemporary life in so many different ways that different classes and different strata of the population come to this institution in which we're all involved and have different and sometimes conflicting aspirations for what we want to get out of this thing. And that it, it's that um, those different interests that lead to these battles that sometimes are submerged and kind of hard to see. And it seems like we're all on the same page about what we're doing here. And then other times flare up and become really acute struggles. So that's what, though it was my experience to in the short answer as a classroom teacher in Harlem in the early 2000s that led to me at, at being very suspicious of, of this agenda in education, which seemed to be a kind of top-down agenda. Who benefits from corporate reform and who loses out? Well, it's complicated. I think that 
the interests were not the interests involved in the privatization effort, which is ongoing. You know, obviously there's some like kind of straight up grifting and profiteering. Diane Ravitch and others have tracked this, and and there are a lot of watchdogs out there who are really tracking this and and uh, following it. There's straight up grift and all kinds of scandals and um, skimming and corruption involved in the privatization effort. But I don't think that alone explains it. Like, I don't think people are just trying to turn a quick buck, although that is, you know, an ingredient. I'm not even sure that's the dominant ingredient. I think there's a more, there's been a more fundamental attempt to dislodge the democratic power of schools as a space where parents and teacher unions have power. And I think teacher unions in particular, Mm -hmm. teacher unions are the largest non-uniformed, teachers are the largest non-uniformed unionized force in the country. And uh, therefore, it's not hard to imagine why they are going to be the target of campaigns to try to weaken their collective power. And so I think there's some of some of it is that is about the taking teachers down a notch. And I think there, there are other things that are at play as well um, that are have to do with, in some cases, gentrification, land grabs. Um, there is a kind of geographic and real estate component to some of this, or so it seemed from our perspective in Harlem. But I think the, the losers of the kind of disruption model of education reform were parents, teachers, and students who really went from, for all of its flaws, a system in which parents were empowered with a lot of rights, uh, the right to march their kid into a school building and demand service. And only that demand services you know, if their child has special needs or needs extra resources, the, the ethos of the way public schooling is set up is that it's, it's on the school to meet the needs of whatever child literally crosses the threshold. And, and it's amazing. You, you think about our society, there's very few things that work this way, where for you to access the service, all you have to be is breathing. You cross the threshold, you don't pay, you just show up. And when you show up, the institution is obligated to surround you with well-trained professionals who are supposed to meet your needs every day. I mean, that's a really remarkable model. Now, it's flawed. There's lots of ways in which my colleagues and I, for many, many years, and going back before I was in this game, were and are campaigning for ways to improve it. But the new model, and this is the other thing I think about kind of winners and losers here, is in the new model, which we saw in its extreme version in places like New Orleans in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, places where the privatization agenda was able to make greater advances more quickly, we see that parents lose that kind of power to make lay claim to the resources of a school and instead are, there is no school that has any obligation to any particular child, no school. 
You can apply to be in a school, but you have no guarantee of service in any particular school. And you are, and it, you know, this is the choice model, which Uju Agarwal and others have written about brilliantly, where the real problem is that the schools also get to do the choosing. It's not just the parents. So, so you lose, you no longer are you a citizen empowered with rights. Increasingly, you're a customer. And as the customer, your relationship is more like your relationship to Burger King. They don't have any obligation to you. They reserve the right to refuse you service, in fact. And so that is something that I think is lost, is school as a democratic space where parents and teachers and students might come together and engage in a process of trying to improve the institution together in their community. Instead, they are parents and students, especially positioned as customers who try to choose uh, from a kind of portfolio of schools and hope that the school also chooses them. Ryan, what does school choice do to the fabric of neighborhoods? Well, you know, I think uh, I remember when I was an elementary school teacher in, I taught in two different schools in Harlem. When I was in East Harlem, I distinctly remember parents coming to me confused as to why the school was sending them, not the school, the, the central New York City Department of Education was sending them letters that seemed to imply that they should leave the school. The letters were pursuant to, or kind of in compliance with the No Child Left Behind law. And so they were the letters were intended to inform parents that if they were dissatisfied with the school, they had the right to leave. And instead of inviting parents to participate in a process of improving the school, you know, you could, which you could imagine what that process would look like. You would imagine, you would imagine you gather parents together. You say, what do you like about this school? You know, you have a discussion all together in the auditorium or something like this. What would you want? What does the school not have that you would like? People throw things out and start talking about how they'd like to, you know, shape the school. Maybe they would want smaller class sizes. Maybe they would want more physical education or more arts or whatever it is that they would want that's not there. And then that would put the onus on not only the administration of that school, but on the central system to try to make changes to that school. And you probably add resources to that school to make it the kind of school that the parents want. But instead, by positioning the choice, there's no choice to do that. There's no choice to participate in something like that. Instead, the choice is leave if you don't like it. And that makes it, that can, I think it's a, it's a kind of cheap way to sell, an, to sell a, a, something as improvement. It's like choice as improvement. Well, you don't have to stay. So some people might, I mean, here's what's contradictory about this is that some people might actually, and some people do experience that as improvement. They didn't like the school they were in. Now they're allowed to leave. They leave, they find a better school. That's an improvement. I mean, for, if you just, you know, anecdotally, you can find people who experience the process of choice as an improvement. The problem is it's not a process that sets up all schools to improve, to actually get the resources they need to improve. So unfortunately, I think one of the, 
instead of investing in the neighborhoods and building them up and making their schools richer and more, you know, deepening parent involvement, adding more resources to the school. You can imagine what that would do to the community and the kind of the, the ties that that would build in a community. Instead, it's about flight. And so I think that has the impact of having people feel like their choices about something as central as a community, as central a community institution as a school, is that their option is not to improve it, but just to leave it. And it's, as you were talking, I was just thinking back to the 60s and that the Johnson, you know, Great Society, which was a response to a massive people's movement, and obviously in many ways was intended to blunt it and co-opt people and so on, but still it, it had to be responsive. And the key phrase was maximum feasible participation. And I just was thinking about how far we've come that nobody talks about maximum feasible participation at this point at all. And it's, it really is exactly what you've described, that it's turned into a consumer relationship and not the expectation that you can make bottom-up change. Yeah. It might require another large-scale social movement that brings the kind of that kind of pressure to bear again in order to have the the, sa- the safety valve be democratic participation, be a be a safety valve response as it was then. Why do you think there's been such consistent support? of school choice and and charters from both Democratic and Republican administrations over the last several decades? Well, I think it seems to be a way to offer improvement. You know, choice is, it feels empowering. It can feel like, you know, you're empowering parents. They don't have to accept a school as it is. They, They can pick up and go somewhere else. And I think some people can experience that as empowerment. That's very attractive. You know, I think there's, you can't deny that, that having choices in life is a powerful thing and it's something people's desirous. It's not all bad. It's just that some choices are, are off the table. There's no choice to improve the school, to add resources to it, as I, as I said. So it's a certain kind of set of choices that are being constructed. A kind of competition between schools is set up. And so I think that's, It's part of what's happened in in New York City is you feel, I mean, I'm a parent of of two kids now too, so, and no longer a classroom teacher. So now I feel like I'm on the other side experiencing this as a parent. And the, the feeling is that the schools are dramatically different from each other and they have different resources. They're resourced differently. They have different vibes and different cultures and struggle in very different ways. And the feeling is that there is a tremendous competition over spots in the most desirable public schools. And so it's almost like we have privatization without privatization because the schools are in competition with each, with each other. The parents feel this competition acutely. They feel that it's very high stakes. And so a school that promises a way out promises a path to high test scores and that that will be, you know, we're going to put your kids on a track to success. That's very attractive. I think that's very, very attractive. And then 
you know, we've, we had this moment where ironically, like I remember this, I'll never forget. I went to this, um, you know, I don't, I'm not saying this was a wise decision, but this was, you know, many years ago, I got invited to go on like one of these like Fox news shows to debate this whole thing, charters and choice and all this. And I, I agreed. And I'm sitting in the green room with a parent and I'm realizing, oh, they've got a charter school parent here, parent of color who is sitting with me. And, you know, this person is going to speak from their experience about how this charter school was like such a saving grace for their kids. And so I just asked the parent, I said, okay, you know, what is it you like about your charter school? Parents starts to rattle off basically the demands of the progressive education movement from the past, like 40 years, hands-on learning, arts and recreation, chess clubs, you know, dynamic after-school programs, in-depth science exploration, small cl- opportunities for small group work, and, and in some cases, smaller class sizes. I mean, I could go on and on and on. It was, it was nothing like, the parent wasn't like, well, I'm so glad that they don't have a teacher's union or, you know, any of these kind of things. It was all of the things we've been fighting for for the public schools. So I feel like, in some ways, it's, uh, it's vindicating of that agenda and, and an understanding that that's something, those are things that are attractive to parents. And really, we ought to be providing those same kind of rich resources and opportunities to all students. And so that it doesn't matter really what school you go to. You're going to go to, if you go to a school, it's going to have a great library and it's going to have opportunities for science education. And there's going to be lots of clubs and different ways for you to shine and, and, and multimodal ways for you to develop your talents and abilities and creativity. I mean, it's, it's not, it's like, we know this. And if some people feel like they can only find it, or maybe it's only given the setup that they did not create, some parents find that they can only find that at a charter school. Well, then who can blame them? And it's our shame as a nation that we just don't give that to every single student. So it's interesting that choice is a very individual thing as opposed to a collective thing. And that seems to me a really central thing that you're saying is that it's every parent for themselves and for their kids. And you get the best deal you can, whether it's within the public school setting or if there's a charter school or if you have money and you you choose a private school of another kind, um, it's all your individual decision and the burden is on you. Uh, As you said, it's shifted from that you can just walk in the door and the burden is on the school. And it reminds me of something in the late eighties, I worked as a parent coordinator in district two in New York city when uh, Tony Alvarado was the uh, superintendent there. And he said that his idea of choice was that different parents might prefer different styles of education for their child, but that you shouldn't have to choose between whether your kid was going to get a good education or not. It should simply be a matter of, do you want your child, you know, sitting on a rug calling the teacher by their first name, or do you prefer that they call them, you know, by their last name, but it's not whether they're going to learn to read and write and be an engaged ultimately an engaged citizen in the broadest sense of the word citizen. Right. Absolutely. And we, we have really 
it's not so right. It's not just like these kind of stylistic or educational philosophic choices. It's like, it feels much higher stakes than that. And the coin of competition between schools has been standardized test scores, which is only further ratchets up the pressure on those test scores. So on those tests and teaching to them. So absolutely. I mean, if we changed the paradigm and you couldn't find a school that didn't have amazing resources, then it would take a lot of the pressure off of, and you could still allow people choice. You'd say, go to any school. But if it actually kind of didn't matter in fundamental ways, you could have a system of choice and people, you know, choice would be a fringe part of the way that the system worked, but it wouldn't be this kind of, you know, this uh, kind of soul wrenching, agonizing uh, process that, that it is right now. So even putting aside the, the aspect of different features at different schools and school choice for say stylistic reasons, I tend to think that this idea of kids going all over the place does eat into the fabric of the neighborhood. Historically, schools have been kind of hubs for the neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, that's true. We have a complicated politics in this country of who gets to live in which neighborhood, who gets to live where. And so, you know, we have to include that in our discussion as well. But, you know, even given that there's... Lots of uh, great research that shows that were we to have a intentional model of trying to bring students from different backgrounds together, and especially especially in a place like New York City, where different kinds of neighborhoods are are a lot of them are pressed right up against each other, um, we could have very diverse schools that are hubs of sometimes even kind of multiple communities. Certainly, yes, that's true. And I think, you know, if people had really well-resourced schools near them, it's unlikely that they would go to great lengths to have their children do a great deal of traveling because there are so many benefits to having your students attend a school that's closer to home. It makes it easier for the parents to be involved in the school, for one thing. It makes it easier for the kids to right. see their friends, you know, when they're not in school. I mean, and on and on, all these things we know. Um, so I don't want to, you know, the, the community, the kind of geography of it is not, it's not an uncomplicated issue sometimes, depending on what community you're talking about. But yes, in general, I think building up the schools as a really well-resourced, attractive place to go and have your needs met and feel seen as an individual, feel cared for and understood and have, a, have, the, have many different opportunities for your, your abilities to grow close to home is an amazing thing. And, and we, should really, we should really offer that to everybody, um, whether they avail themselves of it or not, it should be there. Yeah, I, I agree that especially in elementary school, uh, having a community school can be really central. And certainly you've seen that in places like Chicago, for example, where people have fought really hard against school closings to maintain their community schools. On the other hand, as you say, it is complicated because, again, going back to the civil rights movement, and certainly since then, many of the fiercest resistance to integrating schools 
was around the sanctity of the neighborhood school in places like Malvern, for example, on Long Island, or the big fight where I live now in, in Teaneck, where people, you know, created uh, situations where the community schools were integrated. And then also historically, in the South at least, Black and I think white students in some cases were bused long distances to avoid integration. So I think it is fascinating that it, how much issues of integration and being multiracial in schools are just like everything else is so tightly tied into housing, for example, and residential segregation or, or integration, both economic and racial, of course. Yeah, and the more I'm, I'm learning about, I'm really curious about Black education history. And the more I learn about it, the more I realize that Black people out of necessity have built their own schools on this land again and again and again, and and then built and then had destroyed it, had to rebuild. And so there's this long pattern of people trying to create this resource, bring it into being for their, for their children. In W.E.B. Du Bois's book, Black Reconstruction, he talks about in the aftermath of the Civil War, the first public schools, that is schools that were available to everybody at no cost, supported by taxes, were brought into being by the Black-led movement for democracy in the, in the radical reconstruction, the radical phase of, of reconstruction. Uh, He says, public schools for all, I'm paraphrasing, uh, was a Negro idea. And then goes on in this amazing chapter. It's like this one chapter on on schools that's really remarkable. Everybody should read. He goes on to describe all of these places across the South where white students who were not wealthy, who had never been, had any kind of access to education, go to school for the first time. And in some cases, alongside Black students. And that, in other words, the movement for this democratic resource, this Black-led movement for this democratic resource, actually ended up benefiting white students as well in the South. It's a remarkable history. You've argued that both Democratic and Republican administrations have sought to separate racial justice from economic justice. What do you mean by that? Well, I think there's a way in which the privatization movement very much centered um, its attention on and its moral appeal on the plight of students of color and black students in particular. And there's a way in which they did that in films like Waiting for Superman. And effectively what they did was position themselves as the people who were swooping in and saving black children from a system that's failing them. And they, you know, there's so many whether they're public officials or, uh, you know, people from uh, private industry, wherever they were coming from, and they were coming from all over. And like you say, Democrats and Republicans, they often spoke in the language of the civil rights movement and, and spoke of themselves as continuing the legacy of the civil rights movement by doing this work. And what that ignores is the way in which the civil rights movement was a movement that was shocked through with themes, not only of what you might call racial justice, but economic justice as well. And you can just, everywhere you look, scratch a civil rights story and there's that economic element underneath it or, or alongside it. For example, 
that celebrated 1963 March on Washington, where King gives his I have a dream speech. That's a that's a march for jobs and freedom. Where is King assassinated? He's assassinated in Memphis. What's he doing there? He's supporting black sanitation workers on strike fighting for a union. So again and again, there's an agenda that's about kind of financial democratization, guaranteed income, guaranteed employment, putting a kind of economic floor under people. And that is, goes alongside uh, the fight for uh, democracy and greater worker power at work, uh, which many people get from participating in a union. So, you know, we could go on and on and on. Oh, uh, by the way, I think King, that I Have a Dream speech was first rehearsed or a kind of early version of it was first given at a union hall. Uh, I think it was a UAW union hall where it was first given. So that's the actual history. There's a deep connection between struggling for opportunities for kind of civil and political equality, and also trying to put an economic floor under not only black people, but all people, those are connected ideas. And then along comes this privatization movement, which is aimed at unions and says effectively, these adults are standing in the way of the prospects of these young people. What we have to do is disempower them in order to empower the young people. And then I wrote a book chapter about the way that this attitude and the the policies that flowed from it ended up impacting black teachers disproportionately. And so ironically, this civil rights movement with black youth at the center of its moral appeals leads to an enormous destruction of black teaching jobs, driving black teachers out of the profession in city after city after city. Why? because it turns up the heat so high on standardized test scores. It zeroes in on the places where black teachers are concentrated, which are the places where black students are concentrated, hangs the heaviest sword over those teachers with the greatest consequences and therefore leads to dramatic deleterious results for black teachers. And so you can see a plummeting, plummeting percentages of black teachers in Chicago, in, in New Orleans, in New York City. And, you know, I think it was a very clear pattern nationwide. And then that has economic implications. Public sector employment, especially unionized public sector employment, has been one of the principal levers uh, that Black people have used to achieve middle-class status, send your kids to college, own a home, save a little money, have a kind of financial security. And, you know, guess what? Young people don't stay young forever. They grow up. They're going to need jobs. What kind of employment, what will the employment landscape be for them when they grow up? What kinds of jobs will be available to them? And will those jobs be jobs that are precarious, that are, you know, it's like turning teaching into something that you sit with and you really work on, hone it as a profession over decades, or it seemed, especially in the early heady years of privatization, that they were trying to turn this into a kind of revolving door as a job you do for just a few years on your way to law school or somewhere else. And that too has implications, not only for kind of financial stability of Black communities, ironically, or maybe unironically, but also implications for the quality of teaching in the long run and for the profession. So 
I think there's a way in which they took the banner and kind of waved the flag of racial justice, but the economic implications of the policies were dire and were and it was about a kind of rhetorical pulling of those things apart. You've compared two of the best known black educators separated by many years, Booker T. Washington and Jeffrey Canada. Would you please explain who they are and the parallels between both their environments and their approaches? Yes. You know, Booker T. Washington is probably the nation's most famous, it might even be most famous educator in the nation's history, but certainly most famous Black educator. The founder of the Tuskegee Institute today, Tuskegee University in, in Tuskegee, Alabama. And he founded that institute in at the, at the end of the 19th century at a moment when the hopes of radical reconstruction were being dashed all over the South. And there was a counter-revolutionary movement to quote unquote, redeem the South, burn down the schoolhouses, overthrow biracial governments, democratically elected biracial governments. Uh, This is the era of the Klan, of lynching, of using terrorism really to overthrow a grand experiment in in democracy that was just getting started in the U.S. South, land reform, and we could go on and on. So in that, you know, hopes raised and hopes dashed kind of moment, Booker T. Washington made a way out of no way. And people celebrate him uh, because his institution endured. I mean, all of the historically Black colleges and universities are been really important institutions and have trained and developed and were you know, islands um, in a sea of hostility and racism, islands of enlightenment and personal development and growth and generations of activists and change makers and thought leaders come out of them. They all have, as all education in the United States has, also have this pattern of being stamped by the interests of different classes that bring them into being, that shape them, that try to control them. For a long time, historically black colleges and universities all had white leadership and it was a big deal to change over to black presidents in charge of them. But Tuskegee is different because it was founded by a black man, by by Booker T. Washington. So people understandably have a lot of pride in that. So what's complicated about Booker T. Washington's legacy is that because I think, and this is part of my argument, is that because of the context in which he was emerging, that in order to rise and build an institution that was going to be enduring, and and also I think he also had ambitions to be a player, uh, not just in his little schoolhouse, not just to close the door and just do his thing for his students, as many teachers and educators understandably like, you know, that's really their agenda. But Booker T has greater aspirations um, and ends up, you know, he has a kind of line to the White House. He's the first black person invited to walk through the front door of the White House and, you know, meet with the president uh, to rather to dine. I think with, it is with the president. He's, he, he develops a powerful political machine and the political machine is opposed to figures who, have less of a conciliatory stance toward 
the Jim Crow social order than he has, for example, the Niagara movement led by W.E.B. Du Bois and others. And so what's complicated about him is that, or rather what I'm trying to write about, what I've tried to write about about him is the way in which in an era of collective defeat, when the movement, the collective democratic movement of black people to try to bring about changes, to bring about democracy in the South, when that kind of a movement, that democratic uprising of black people trying to build democracy and achieve a greater freedom from below, when that when that was crushed, then Booker T found another way. And the because he was initially, he was initially, you know, he signed up for the Republican Party. He went to the meetings. Like we have him on record trying to pursue a different path where he's going to become like a politician and maybe get elected to office. And like, he's going to get involved in Republican party politics. Like he's joining with the revolution, basically. It gets, as a young, very young person, that movement gets crushed. And so now he pivots and he pivots to, he becomes enmeshed with and, and over time develops a relationship with some of the most wealthy and powerful people in US society and they fund his institute and make it possible and make his career possible. And as he does so, he's making these public pronouncements that are very much against what people are trying to do to his left. You know, people who are advocating for civil rights and political equality and, and that sort of thing. And he's navigating a different path. I think there's something similar about Jeffrey Canada and that is that he also kind of comes of age at a time when the uprisings and the energy of the movement of the 60s and 70s feels like it has been thwarted, like it has been unsick. It did not feel, it felt to him, he writes about this in his memoir, like it was not finding a way forward. The Black Panthers were not coming to save him or we're not gonna you know, transform his circumstances. And he too reaches out to some of the wealthiest figures in our society today makes common cause with them. And on the basis of their, the energy and support that they lend him, he becomes, I mean, he's just like on television all the time, all of these kind of fawning profiles of him. And like Booker T, he has a record of making these public pronouncements that are kind of hostile to what people are trying to do to his left. left. In his case, he's very directs a lot of energy and ire at the time of when I was writing about him, he was directing a lot of fire at teachers unions and the activists who were trying to, what I perceived, what we were trying to perceive as defend and improve public schools. And so it seems like the parallel between the two of them is figures who rise at a moment when collective struggles for democracy and justice are kind of thrown back on their heels, that that's the context for figures like these to become the most prominent leaders of kind of Black education efforts. Whereas when you look inside the movements in their ascent and look at what kind of educational thinking comes out of them, it's a different picture. And it's, it's ideas about teaching that are more about kind of democratic empowerment. And if anything, they're more suspicious of people who are wealthy and powerful and, you know, kind of have, are more friendly to a broader radical agenda and radical ideas and, and, you know, thinking and a broader kind of way of thinking about 
political and social life and what and what equality ought to mean. And so, you know, these figures, again, it's one thing, you know, anybody, everybody has freedom of thought and can think and advocate for whatever they want. When you get to that kind of a grand stage and that many people are listening to what you have to say and you go out of your way to try to foreclose the opportunities of activists to your left, that to me is a certain kind of move that is different than what other Black educators are doing, um, even their contemporaries in both cases. And then I have a book coming out in the fall uh, that's based on my uh, research I did at the CUNY Graduate Center. It was archival research in the Tuskegee archives in Alabama and interviews I conducted with more than 20 former Tuskegee students, faculty and administrators. And what I was looking into is the history of student dissent and protest on the Tuskegee campus. It's one thing if we say, well, you know, uh, what a lot of people say is like, well, Du Bois, of course Du Bois didn't see things the way Booker T did. Booker T was born a slave. You know, this is somebody who felt the lash. How dare we criticize him when we don't know half of the danger that he faced? A totally understandable sentiment, by the way, and one that, you know, I, I always feel a kind of moment of caution thinking about Booker T and, and saying these things about him publicly. But what I, my research uncovered is that you didn't have to be in Massachusetts like Du Bois was to be a critic of Booker T. Washington. The pe people on the campus in Alabama who didn't come from Massachusetts, who came from Alabama and from Louisiana and from Mississippi, that is people who shared Booker T. Washington's, shared the dangers, shared the experiences on the campus in the late 19th century, protested, dissented, wrote petitions, wrote letters, and even went on strike. Wow. There is a legacy of disagreement. That is, you can say whatever you want to say to defend Booker T. Washington. Fine, that's understandable. But what we can't say is that everybody who was in his circumstance saw it the same way. And that you, oh, you have to be a Negro from somewhere else to disagree with him. That's not true, either in place or in time people in his place, in his time, disagreed with him. And then in my, the book, which is called The Tuskegee Student Uprising, A History, it's coming out in NYU Press's Black Power series in this fall, I believe. And it, it traces that history and then slows down to really tell the story of the 1960s Tuskegee student movement, which is very explosive in which students radicalized, like many other students did in that era, participating in Southern movements and across the whole region, um, in the Black Belt movements for democracy and social change. And then they returned to their campus changed. They were transformed. And when they got back to class, they saw class differently. They saw teaching and learning differently. They had different expectations about their education, and they took the lead in transforming their university, in making curricular demands, in making demands about the content, the teaching and learning, the administration. They, they had so many ideas about how this school needed to change, and they reckoned with the legacy 
of Booker T. Washington. As you enter the campus, there's his statue right at the entrance of the campus. So I'm trying to tell a story about how even in these places that get carved out as kind of centers of black conservatism or whatever you wanna say, that even in those places, people can go through an intellectual awakening that leads them down a road to not only having different political ideas, but also in relation to that awakening, different educational ideas. That's, that's fascinating. I can't wait for your book to come out. And speaking of people pushing for change, You've said that many districts that have implemented positive steps pushed by Black educators, such as culturally responsive education, restorative justice, and ethnic studies, do so in a top-down manner that strips away their redistributive potential. Could you talk about that? Well, yeah, I don't want to overstate that point. I mean, I think we're in a moment where there's a lot that is being, there's a lot that's contentious and being debated and discussed and fought over in education, certainly the current freak out about critical race theory and all kinds of things we could name. I think it's important to kind of first acknowledge that there is a certain victory in having things like restorative justice, you know, discussed and in any way, shape or form implemented at the highest levels of education in the United States, go all the way up to the U.S. Department of Education, kind of putting its stamp of endorsement on these things. The reality is, though, when I speak to my colleagues who are still in the classroom, is that to meaningfully carry out a process that is genuinely restorative when there has been harm, student to student, teacher to student, student to teacher, whatever it is, somewhere in the school community, requires resources of time and personnel. It it requires more resources. Um, You cannot It's not just a methodological change. It's also that you have to add something to these ingredients to make it possible for people to take a breath, take it and take the time to go through a restorative process. And so there is a, there is a danger of people taking a methodology and saying, yes, you should all be restorative. Why aren't you doing restorative justice now? And, you know, you could easily see how an administration could use that as a kind of stick with which to uh, whack the teachers on the head. Why aren't you being more restorative? Well, it's like, well, uh, let, me, let me talk to you about my class size and my workload. If you want me to be restorative, how, you know, make the space in my day for this, please. So that's the danger, really, is that, and it's the danger with all reforms. We go through this with all, you spoke earlier about maximum feasible participation. Every time we win something, there's a danger that the method of its adoption ends up becoming problematic in some way, shape or form. So this is nothing new. This is just recognizing, I think that there have been some victories. There's this, I mean, for example, the New York city just paid 10 million, just devoted $10 million to developing a K-12 black studies curriculum for all New York city public school students. That's an amazing victory. All right. That's amazing. And that just means that whenever we win these kind of victories, we also want to not take our foot off the gas and recognize that we have to try to make sure that things get rolled out, that space and time get made, and that resources are put into the rollout in a way that's going to make it genuinely possible and genuinely a good thing. You know, you could make this case about black studies in higher ed or ethnic studies, like, you know, you fight for these things, 
you fight for these things to get institutionalized. And then is it possible for them to get institutionalized in a way that that becomes hostile to further organizing, the very organizing that made them possible? Yes, that is, yes, that can happen. And that does happen. So that's that's really what I'm pointing to when I'm talking about something like that. It's about the way in which a lot of what we consider progress or moving forward are things that came out of social struggles and social movements. They can be institutionalized in a way that then kind of tries to close the door to further advocacy. And I think we should keep those doors open. You've given shout outs on many occasions to the late Jean Agnon of the CUNY Graduate Center and her influence on you. Could you talk about some of her lasting impact on you? Well, I'm deeply grateful to her for many reasons. Uh, we kind of became friends after speaking on a panel together while I was a classroom teacher. And then she reached out and strongly encouraged me to pursue the PhD. And that began the kind of series of discussions that led to me doing just that. Um, so just that alone, for that alone, I'm deeply grateful to her that she is the one who convinced me to go on this journey of conducting research. And it was challenging and very difficult, but it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. And she was, I felt in all things, truly a comrade in the best sense of the word. That is like truly somebody who was working alongside me to try to figure things out. And it was amazing to take classes with her because we were kind of in awe of her work and her writing and her intellect. And yet she seemed to have zero ego when it came to thinking critically about her own work and really invited us to uh, see her as a peer and somebody whom we could criticize and, and as people whom, from whom she could learn. And so that was really a remarkable experience. So there's so many ways in which she was teaching just by her way of being in the world um, that I've tried to pay forward uh, in my life. And then she passed, unfortunately, early in my career as a researcher and was really just taken from us in a surprising and unexpected way. And so I've, I've really tried to um, hold on to the phrase that is the title of her last book, Radical Possibilities, that there are things that when we join together and uh, when we develop and discover our latent collective abilities, when we combine that amazing things are possible, that our possibilities that we didn't think were possible suddenly become possible. And school is one of those places, one of those rare, still a rare institution in our society where most of us participate one way or another. And I think there's a lot of possibility for school to be a place where we think together outside of the bounds of what is and dream about what else may be. So speaking of rare institutions, the New York Public Library, which I think has influenced so many of us in, in so many ways. Would you tell us about this new uh, Center for Educators and Schools? What sorts of resources do you provide and, and how can our listeners access those resources? The Center for Educators and Schools uh, is a, I hesitate to say it's a new initiative because I've learned that the New York Public Library has been around for 125 years. There's almost nothing that's new, but we are newly gathering a 
team of people at the New York Public Library whose sole mission is to serve educators. So what that means is that if there's some way in which you as a teacher listening to this or as an educator want to make use of the New York Public Library, now there's a whole team of people devoted to making that happen. And that means that we are combing through the library's immense archives, the archives of the Schomburg Center, of the Stephen A. Schwartzman Building of the Library for the Performing Arts, looking for unique and amazing items that could be impactful and relevant in your classroom and getting them ready so that they're easy to teach with. We are providing credit-bearing workshops for teachers on these and many other topics every week, uh, which are free for teachers, some of which are virtual, some of which are in person. Um, on June 9th, we're going to host at the Schomburg Center an all-day Juneteenth-inspired day of professional learning, credit-bearing. Half the day will be hybrid for a virtual audience. We're, we're having Nicole Hannah-Jones as a, in a keynote conversation at the beginning of the day. Uh, we're very excited about that. And if people want to find out more, and, and there's more that I'm leaving out, uh, special access to exhibitions, a crack team of librarians who are expert at working with educators. There's just so much that this center has to offer. You can find it at nypl.org slash CES, which stands for Center for Educators and Schools, nypl.org slash CES. And one of the easiest things to do there right at the top of the page is subscribe to our newsletter. We won't bombard your inbox. It's monthly. And that will keep you in the know about what we're up to and what we're offering. Thank you, Dr. Brian Jones, Director of the New York Public Library's Center for Educators and Schools. Thanks so much for having me. This was a pleasure. And thank you, listeners. If you like this episode, please consider subscribing and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles, and subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Till next week.